If you'd like to open your Bibles to Job chapter 21, we're going to be continuing our sermon series through this, this Old Testament book. God and Suffering is the title of the series. It addresses the topic of suffering from a lot of different angles, and in the midst of that, there are all kinds of jewels that are waiting to be discovered. So we're going to be looking at Job chapter 21, verses 1 through 34, so the whole chapter. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask, as always, for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would open our eyes to see the meaning of this passage. Open our hearts to receive your word. And Father, allow us to apply what you teach us as we walk with you in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When was the last time you had to identify yourself? You think about that for just a minute. Maybe it was at the DMV, you were getting a, your driver's license renewed or a new registration and plates for a vehicle, and you had to prove you were who you said you were. So maybe you had your social security card or your birth certificate or a recent utility bill with your name and address on it. You had to prove yourself. You had to prove who you were. Or maybe you have had to show your ID at work. Some people have to show their ID every day when they go to work. Um, it's not uncommon for employees to have an ID issued to them by their employer. They don't want just anybody walking around in the back or on the shop floor or out in the yard or in the lab or wherever it happens to be because those places are restricted access only. It makes sense. They only want employees in the employee areas. So we get that, right? I, I think we all understand that there are times when it's necessary to show ID, to verify that someone is who they say they are, or to verify that someone belongs to a certain group. In chapter 21, Job is answering Zophar. We don't ever want to forget the context in which we find these chapters. So Job is answering Zophar and says, you cannot positively ID a wicked person by the presence of suffering in their life. Because that's what Zophar was saying in the earlier chapter. And Job says, no, trying to make a positive ID regarding someone's spiritual state based on the presence or absence of suffering just doesn't work. It doesn't match reality. That's what he's saying in this chapter. But interestingly, as Job makes this argument, he is actually revealing how we can make a type of positive ID. Job shows us how we can make a type of positive ID that verifies whether someone should or should not be called a believer, a follower of Christ. And we do that all the time. We say, uh, do you know so-and-so? Oh yeah, so-and-so, they're a believer. Or uh, you're, you're talking with a, an adult son or daughter who are making arrangements, funeral arrangements for their recently deceased parent, and they're asked, was your, was your parent a believer? And they say, oh yeah, um, well, uh, no, mom, or no, dad was not a believer. We, we do that all the time, right? We make these kinds of calls. 
we make a positive ID, on what basis do we make those calls? Well, those types of calls or positive IDs are based in part on what Job has to say in this chapter. Strange as that may seem, we find some of the, the basis or the, the means by which we can make these positive ID calls right here in Job chapter 21. So let's go ahead and read through this uh, 34 verses and hear Job's response to Zophar. Then Job answered and said, Keep listening to my words and let this be your comfort. Bear with me and I will speak. And after I have spoken, mock on. As for me, is my complaint against man? Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled and lay your hand over your mouth. When I remember, I am dismayed and shuddering seizes my flesh. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail, their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out, that their calamity comes down upon them, that God distributes pains in his anger, that they are like straw before the wind, and like chaff that the storm carries away? You say, God stores up their iniquity for their children. Let him pay it out to them, that they may know it. Let their own eyes see their destruction, and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what do they care if their houses, for their houses after them when the number of their months is cut off? Will any teach God knowledge, seeing that he judges those who are on high? One dies in his full vigor, being wholly at ease and secure, his pails full of milk and the marrow of his bones moist. Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted of prosperity. They lie down alike in the dust, and the worms cover them. Behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes to wrong me. For you say, where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent in which the wicked lived? Have you not asked those who travel the roads, and do you not accept their testimony that the evil man is spared in the day of calamity, that he is rescued in the day of wrath? Who declares his way to his face, and who repays him for what he has done? When he is carried to the grave, watch is kept over his tomb. The clods of the valley are sweet to him, and all mankind follows after him, and those who go before him are innumerable. How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. So Job is responding to Zophar's words from chapter 20. The, the wicked do not continue in their wickedness forever. Remember, that was Zophar's position. Zophar said, no, 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 it's the short-lived rule. Remember, there, there's evil for a while, but eventually God cuts them off in this life. And Zophar's point, of course, was that Job had reached that point. Job had committed some kind of secret sin, and that secret sin has caught up with him, and now Job, 
that's what you're experiencing. You're experiencing the judgment of God in this life. And we concluded that Zophar was, was saying some, some good, true things. Zophar was saying that God judges sin. That's true. Um, the, the deceitfulness of sin, uh, that, it, that it is misleading, that it, it always presents the, the bait and hides the hook. He, all those things are true. And they help us know our enemy. However, Zophar was mistaken because he was trying to apply that to Job. Now, God most certainly does pour out his wrath on wicked man, but not always in this lifetime. And that's what Job is saying in chapter 21. It doesn't always happen in this lifetime. So he begins in verse 1, Please hear me. Job's opening with a petition to be heard. Keep listening to my words. Let this be your comfort. They're not comforting with, his, with their words. So what Job is saying here is, if you be quiet, that will be your comfort to me. If you really want to bring me comfort, just be quiet for a while and let me take my turn. Your silence will comfort me. Bear with me while I speak, and then when I'm done, you can continue to mock me. And verse 3. Verse 4, as for me, is my complaint against man? The answer is no. Job's complaint is not against man. Job is complaining against God. Remember, God is the one that Job is seemingly having this difficulty with. God is the sender of his suffering, and, and Job is, is confused about why he's experiencing uh, being treated like an enemy of God. So his complaint against, is against God. That's why he's impatient or short with God. He can't figure it out. In verse 5 and 6, he points to exhibit A to prove his suffering. He says, look at me and be appalled. And we're reminded, oh yeah, Job is in extreme physical suffering. He's covered from head to toe in loathsome sores. Look at me, lay your hand over your mouth. It's still devastating to Job that he's being treated like an enemy of God. When I remember I am dismayed and shuddering seizes my flesh. To experience being cut off from God is the source of of Job's greatest pain. In verse 7 through 13, he says, uh, explain this, Zophar. Um, it contains multiple examples of how the wicked do not always get what they deserve in this life. So Job is challenging Zophar's words. Remember, Zophar said it always happens like this. It's the short-lived rule. God visits the, the wickedness of people. They're always cut short. And so Job is pushing back with all these examples. And here's his argument. He's saying, if I can prove that the wicked do not always get what they deserve in this life, then it follows that the righteous don't always get what they deserve in this life. And of course, he's referring to himself. If undeserved prosperity is a thing, then undeserved suffering must also be a thing. So explain this so far. Verse 7, the wicked grow old and attain might and power in this life. How does that square with your idea that there is no undeserved suffering? If, if the wicked end up uh, being prosperous, that doesn't match up with what you're telling me. Verse 8, the wicked live long enough to see their children and descendants grow old. Verse 9, the house of the wicked remains established. They don't experience God's wrath. Verse 10, their livestock remain healthy and multiply. Verses 11 and 12, they have many children and their lives are filled with celebrations. Verse 13, the wicked prosper and sometimes live entirely peaceful lives. Job saying, that happens, so can you explain that so far? 
that doesn't match up with what you were telling me in chapter 20. And then evidence of wickedness. So what he's doing is, this, this next section is kind of a preemptive strike. He's saying, uh, so far before you answer me and say, well, all those things that you're talking about, then they must be righteous people. Job says, no, they're wicked people. And here's how we know they're wicked. Based on these observations, Job is identifying them as wicked. Verse 14, they say, depart from us. So these same people who are prospering are also the ones that want nothing to do with God. They want God to leave them alone, to go away, not to interfere with their lives. They say, we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. They don't want to be taught righteousness. They are engaging in willful, purposeful rebellion, godlessness. They say, what is the Almighty that we should serve him? They don't want to serve God as their creator. They say, and what profit do we get if we pray to him? The wicked have no concept of praying to God for who he is um, because he is God. They don't pray to God because he's worthy of praise and thankfulness or because he is our creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Instead, it's what do I get? What's in it for me? Convince me. Sell me on this prayer thing. What, what, what do I get? If, if I rub this genie's lamp, you promise he'll give me anything that I ask for? That's the attitude of the wicked. Verse 16 is Job sarcastically conveying the thoughts of the wicked. He's saying, uh, behold, is not their prosperity in their, old, in their own hand? The, the wicked say, we, we are um, self-made. I'm a self-made man. God had nothing to do with where I am today. I've worked hard to get where I am today, and God had nothing to do with it. It's all me. It's not God. That's the attitude of the wicked. And Job says, the counsel of the wicked is far from me. He doesn't want anything to do with that, that thinking. Verses uh, 17 and 18, this next section, give me some specifics. How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out? Job wants so far to quantify his statements about the wicked. Because he's made this broad statement and he just wants Job to, expect it, to, to accept it without, without asking any questions. There was a uh, college student who wanted to leave early for break one year and this final was scheduled on Friday but as soon as they were done with the finals they could leave and so they went to the instructor and they said uh, you know I've been talking to a lot of people and they said we should move it to Thursday so we can get a good early start on our break the professor said hmm, a lot of people um, like everybody and they said well no not everybody um, 10 um, well no not 10 well, how many people have you actually talked to? They said, well, it's me and another person. Oh, okay. See, when you quantify things, it, it becomes a little easier to understand um, what's actually happening. So here's Job asking to give some specifics. How often does calamity come upon the wicked? How often does God visit them with his anger? Job's saying, I want, I want you to give me some real numbers here. Don't just, just make these blanket statements um, I'm not seeing this happen as often as you say it's happening because you're saying it's happening all the time. I'm not seeing that. I need some real numbers. The next section, let's stay focused on the wicked. This is uh, 
um, Job anticipating another objection, you can hear it. He says, you say, in other words, he's talking to Zophar, you say, God stores up their iniquity for their children. So Job is not going to allow Zophar to get off track. He's saying, look, no, 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 no. Don't, don't tell me that if you see an example of a wicked person who doesn't happen to receive uh, judgment in this lifetime, don't tell me that God's saving that up for his children. No, 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 that's, that's not going to work. Um, he's not, that's not how God uh, operates. Um, let's stay focused on the wicked man here, not his kids. Um, and then he follows it up with some statements like, God paid out to them, the wicked man, that they may know it. Let their own eyes see their destructions and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. So he's saying that, that doesn't work. Um, how, how is paying out judgment on someone's children a deterrent from sin? If, if, in fact, the wicked man doesn't care, then it's not a deterrent at all. And let's, let's say we do have a wicked person. If they are truly wicked, they don't care what happens to the people who come after them, even their own children. In fact, one could argue that this is even um, an incentive to participate in godliness and wickedness. If the wicked person says, well, I know nothing's going to happen to me in my lifetime. That's too bad for my kids, but I'm just going to you know, whoop it up while I'm alive because I know that, that it, God's storing up wrath for my kids. It doesn't work. In the next section, the shoe doesn't fit. This is Job addressing Zophar and the other two friends. Do you really think you can teach God knowledge? Do you really think, Zophar, Bildad and Lephaz, that you can instruct God, that you can teach him how he should respond to wickedness? Verses 23 and 26 is describing how there is no hard and fast rule that determines whether or not a person experiences suffering in this life. The wicked person does not always receive judgment in this life. He says one, meaning one of the wicked, dies in full vigor, being holy, uh, being whole at ease and secure, his pails full of milk and the marrow of his bones moist. In other words, some, some wicked die having lived a full and a long life with no hardship, protected from harm, with no lack of food or possessions and full health right up to the end. That's what that marrow of the bones being moist. It means uh, constitutionally, I mean physically, they're, they're healthy, they're, they're in good shape, right up to the end. In contrast, he says, another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted prosperity. So some of the wicked die after living a difficult life, filled with hardship and want. He says, they both lie down alike in the dust and the worms cover them. There's another place where dust means grave. They both go to the grave alike. So your system of thought, so far in friends, doesn't work. Bildad's shoe, remember that's the term that we use to describe the system of thought that says God always delivers judgment on the wicked in this lifetime and God always brings blessing and prosperity on the righteous in this lifetime. Job's saying that just doesn't fit. He begins to wind down. Verse 27, Behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes to wrong me. 
Again, Job is anticipating what they're going to say. He said, I know what you're going to say. I know I haven't convinced you. I know your schemes. For you say, where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent in which the wicked live? So Job is anticipating them pointing to some specific examples where it actually did happen. He's, he's anticipating that they're going to point to some specific examples of a, of a wicked man or a wicked prince that was brought down. And then they can turn around and say, see, that's how it works. It does happen sometimes, but that doesn't mean it happens all the time. And of course their scheme is to show that because the wicked man is brought down in this lifetime, and because Job has been brought down, therefore Job is the wicked man. That's, that's their scheme. That's what they're trying to prove. In verse 29 and 30, he says, Have you not asked those who travel the roads, and do you not accept their testimony? But the evil man is spared in the day of calamity. He's telling his friends, you three are so cut off from reality. You've been living in your own little isolated bubble for too long. You need to get out there and talk to some other people. You need to travel a little bit and talk to some people that have some experience under their belt because they're going to tell you the same thing I'm telling you. They're going to tell you that this isn't always how it works. The evil man does not always experience calamity and the wrath of God. Reality, verse 31, here's what reality looks like, Job says. Who declares his way to his face and who repays him for what he has done? Meaning the wicked man. Job says, who, who goes up to the wicked man and actually tells him you're wicked or, or repays him? And the answer, of course, is no one. They're either afraid of the wicked man or they're too busy applauding the wicked man. That's reality. 32, when he is carried to the grave, watch is kept over his tomb. The wicked man dies and he's honored. We, there's a watch set over his tomb so no one defaces it or vandalizes his tomb. Verse 33, the clods of the valley are sweet to him and all mankind follows after him and those who go before him are innumerable. Clods of the valley, the valley was a traditional burial place. So meaning the burial place is sweet to him. This is kind of like an Old Testament way of the modern day phrase, he rests in peace. The wicked man rests in peace. Those that go before and after him are many. All mankind innumerable. It means his, his funeral is this big expensive shindig with all the trimmings and there's lots of people going before and lots of people coming after. Everybody honors the wicked man. This final comment, verse 34, How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. So Job is saying, in light of what I've just shown you, I, I've poked all these holes in your, in your argument, and there's no way you can possibly comfort me because everything you're telling me is false. Zophar and, and the other two friends, everything you're, you're sharing with me doesn't match reality. There's just no way that you can conclude that if someone is suffering in this life, then they are living wickedly against God. As long as you continue to bang away on that same drum, I'm not going to listen to you. That, that's how Job concludes. Making a positive ID. So, in chapter 21, Job shows his friends the error of their belief system. The reality is that the wicked are not always judged in this life. And Job provided numerous examples to show that. We can think of numerous examples today. 
Some live long, healthy, prosperous lives and die a peaceful death with the world showing them great honor. The conclusion then is that some wicked receive observable judgment in this life and some don't. You cannot positively ID the state of someone's soul by looking at the presence or absence of suffering in their life. So, if that's true, and it is, is there any way to make a positive ID to determine if someone's uh, either a believer or an unbeliever? Remember at the beginning I said we make those calls all the time. Should we be making those calls? On what basis? First, a disclaimer. There is no way that anyone can peer into someone's heart and see with an uh, infallible uh, nature and insight whether or not someone is truly regenerate or unregenerate. We can't. We are not God. We cannot look at someone's heart and see if someone is regenerate or unregenerate. Only God knows that the Day of Judgment will reveal that to us. However, God has given us the means to make a positive ID, a type of positive ID. He gives us these means in his word that enable us to call someone a Christian or not. He enables us to call someone and, and, and ID them as a believer or an unbeliever. Not only can we make this type of positive ID, there are verses in the Bible that by necessary inference mean we must make this type of positive ID. For example, in 1 Peter 5.2, elders are commanded to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That's a command. That's a New Testament command from our Lord. How are we supposed to shepherd the flock if we don't know who's in the flock? How are we supposed to shepherd the flock if we've never been able to ID who's a believer and who's not a believer? Likewise, Philippians 4.21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Well, how will we know who to greet if we haven't made that kind of positive ID between believer and unbeliever, if we haven't made an ID between who's a saint and who's not a saint. It's impossible to follow some of these commands unless we've made a positive ID. So yes, Job 21 teaches us that the wicked cannot be positively ID'd by the presence or absence of suffering in their life, but it also helps us positively ID who we can legitimately call a believer or an unbeliever. Strange as it may seem, here it is, right here in chapter 21 of Job. So let's take a look at these and apply them. Number one, Job teaches us that unbelievers and believers respond differently to God's presence and God's word. God's presence and God's word. First, unbelievers. Unbelievers want God to leave them alone. And they don't want to be taught from God's word. Job 21.14, they say to God, Depart from us, we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. So when it comes to the presence of God, unbelievers don't want God near them. They want him to depart. They don't want God in their workplace, in their day-to-day activities, conversations, entertainment, government, education, or relationships. Depart from us. Leave us alone. Don't tell us how to live. Let us make our own laws. Let us decide what's good and evil, what's right and wrong. We want to be autonomous, independent, unrestricted by the Bible and by God's moral law. 
We want an origin story that has nothing to do with you as our creator. Depart from us. Our purpose in life is what we say it is, not what you have revealed. Depart from us. We want to define ourselves however we want. Depart from us. I do not want to draw near to you in worship. I do not want to be taught from your word. Depart from me and do not teach me your ways. That's the, that's the reaction or the response to God's presence and God's word. The unbeliever does not approach God, worship God, or serve God. He does not want to, uh, the presence of God to be near him or to know his word. On the other hand, if we look at believers, it's a 180 degree opposite. Uh, the believer wants to, God to be near them at all times and to be taught God's word. Let's look at the contrast here. Here's Job 21, 14. They say to God, depart from us. Psalm 38, oh my God, be not far from me. 180 degree opposite. Psalm 51, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. The, the response to God's presence is very different for a believer. The last thing that a believer wants is for God to depart from them. The last thing, they want God to be near. I remember several years ago, and I don't know if it's still there, but I remember watching Sesame Street, and they were teaching the concepts of near and far, and they had Grover or some other Muppet on there, and Grover would say near, he would stand kind of near the camera. And then he would go along and do that Muppet trot a little bit far away, and he would turn around and he would say, far! And he would just keep increasing the distances until finally you couldn't see him anymore. And all you could hear was this quiet yell, far! And then he would run all the way up until his face filled the entire screen, and that's all you could see, and he would say, near! It was very helpful to teach those concepts of near and far, but it also is an illustration of the response to God's presence. The unbeliever wants God to move so far away that he's out of sight and not in their life at all. Whereas the believer wants God to be so near that he fills their life. So that's all they can see. What a difference between a believer and unbeliever to the presence of God. The believer approaches God, draws near to him. The believer worships God and makes Sunday morning a priority. The believer serves Jesus Christ and his church to the best of their ability. The believer also wants to know God's word. Remember, that's the other response that the unbeliever uh, has a 180 degree opposite uh, response. The believer wants to know God's word. Here's the contrast again. Um, or excuse me. Uh, yeah, here's the contrast. Job 21, 14b, we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. That's the unbeliever regarding the word of God. Psalm 25, 4, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your plans. Almost word for word, the exact opposite. Believers will seek out good Bible teaching like a thirsty animal searches for water. If, if there is a lack of good biblical teaching in your life, it's not from the lack of resources. I can remember, and I think a lot of us here too can remember back in the day when if you wanted good Bible teaching, there was Sunday morning, and then during the week you were kind of on your own. If you found a good radio station that had a good program or a good sermon on it, you could probably catch that once in a while, 
Uh, remember from 7.30 to 8 o'clock, there was R.C. Sproul renewing your mind. It, I drove to work from 7.30 to 8, and it was on from 7.30 to 8. So I felt like I had a class every morning being taught. It was wonderful. But, but apart from Sunday morning and the radio, the only other resources you had were books and maybe tapes. And to get those, you had to go to a brick-and-mortar Christian bookstore. And they had a lot of reference materials and fiction materials and very little solid biblical teaching materials. And even then, they had what they had was what they contained in the store. It was very limited in their selection. The only other thing you could do was get on a mailing list, and you would get on the mailing list of a publisher or a, ca- of a, or a publishing company, and you would receive a catalog. And you'd have to order things through a catalog, either call it in or, or mail it off. But even then, that was a finite resource. You could only get so many things. It was just more difficult. Today, there are more sermons available, more biblical teaching available than you could ever uh, consume in a lifetime. There, there are more sermons, good, solid teaching, contemporary pastors, historical pastors, um, sermons, teaching. There is so much online that if you started today and you listened 24-7 for the rest of your life, you would not be able to cover it all. We have, within seconds, type it in, you can order any book that's published. It's not a catalog or a store, it's the internet. So if, if you're not getting good biblical resources and consuming them, then that's on you today. It really is. Because they're out there. Believers will seek out good Bible teaching like a thirsty animal searches for water. They will want to grow in the knowledge of God's ways and intentionally seek ways to move along their discipleship path. They will desire to be taught sound doctrine and apply it to their daily living. So the presence of God, unbeliever far, believer near. The word of God, unbeliever, I don't want to be taught. Believer, teach me your ways. The third means by which we can make a positive ID. Unbelievers and believers respond differently to God's authority. Unbelievers and believers respond differently to God's authority. Unbelievers deny and reject God's authority over their life. Job 21.15 What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? That sounds an awful lot like Pharaoh from Exodus, doesn't it? Who is the Lord that I shall obey his voice and let Israel go? The unbeliever does not acknowledge Jesus' lordship over their life. They do not bend the knee. There's an illustration, and I can't cite the original source because I'm not sure, but it's out there regarding discipleship and conversion, and it looks something like this. Uh, In the middle of this big circle is a chair. That's the throne of your life. And before someone comes to Christ, they're on the throne. They're on the chair. And all these things around it, time, finance, money, decisions, plans, all of worship, all these things are bowing down to the self. It's a self-directed life. That's a good illustration of how the unbeliever lives. All these things bow down to them. In contrast, believers reorient their life around Jesus and his authority. Psalm 95, 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So in contrast, instead of the self being on the chair, when we come to Christ, when when God gets a hold of us, we get up off the throne and Jesus sits on the throne. 
And now all these things, time, money, finance, decisions, worship, all, all these things, decisions, bow down to our Lord. What a difference it makes. We acknowledge the authority. The believer joyfully comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ and surrenders to him, even if it means making major changes to our values and our schedules and even our deeply held beliefs. Believers will gladly bring their life in line with God's good word because they know it's truth and they want to please their king. So God's presence, God's word, God's authority, and the last one, relationship with God. Relationship with God. Unbelievers view God through a cost analysis lens. I don't know if you caught that in Job. Job 21.15. And what profit do we get if we pray to him? What profit do we get? I remember evangelizing a friend at work and we were having a dialogue and I was presenting the gospel and at one point I took them to Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I was explaining all this and their response was this. Wait, you mean if I believe in Jesus, I have to serve him the rest of my life? Some free gift. It was a cost analysis approach. They heard me. They, they heard me. When you come to Christ, he is your master. You serve him. But see, they were thinking, wait a minute, that doesn't seem like it's worth it to me. I did, it doesn't seem like forgiveness of my sins is worth having me have to serve someone for the rest of my life. Cost analysis. God is someone or something to the unbeliever generally to be avoided unless they get into a bind and then God can do something for them and get them out of it. And then after the crisis is over, he can be put on the back shelf again until needed. So cost analysis lens. In contrast, believers view their relationship with God through a cost-me-everything lens. Look at Philippians 1.29. Paul tells the church, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul's up front. He said, look, yes, believe in him, but so that you know. He's calling you to a life of suffering for his name's sake. And Paul practices what he preaches. And later on in the book, in Philippians 2.17, he says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering... And when he says that, he means even my life. Even if my life is to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. You see what he's saying? He's saying, even if I die in the course of my apostolic ministry to the church, I'm glad. I'm happy. I'm, I'm going to rejoice with you for it. Very different. Instead of a cost analysis lens, believers love God for who he is and for what he's done for them, not for what they can get out of it to further their own self-directed life. Believers draw near, grow, learn, and they're discipled and served because Jesus is our Lord and Savior, not because he's going to give us health and wealth. We don't view God through a cost analysis lens, but through a cost-me-everything lens. 
So Job 21 gives us several means to make a positive ID so we can rightly call someone a believer or unbeliever. But but Job is by no means alone. Lest we think that these verses in Job are isolated or that the the Bible's not really that interested in making this distinction between believer and unbeliever and about the church making a positive ID, here's just a couple of other New Testament examples. 1 John 2.5 By this we may know that we are in him. That sounds like we're making a distinction. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Galatians 5.24 And those who belong to Jesus Christ, sounds like believers, have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person, unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And then 1 Timothy 3.6, within the context of qualifications for elders, he must not be a recent convert. So not only in 1 Timothy 3.6 are they discerning and positively IDing between believer and unbeliever, but they're IDing between a believer and a new believer. They're making an ultra-fine distinction there. It's very important. The Bible gives us these verses and others so we are able to make a positive ID and call someone a believer or an unbeliever which asks the question, why? Why is it so important? Why has has God given us the means and the expectation that we will make a distinction and make a positive ID to be able to call someone a believer or an unbeliever? Why? The church makes positive IDs between believer and unbeliever so she can function as Jesus has commanded the church. The church makes a positive ID between believers and unbelievers so the church can function as Jesus commanded the church to function. The church is Jesus' chosen instrument for continuing the work of Christ until he returns. The church is Jesus' chosen instrument to proclaim the gospel and make disciples in this world until he returns. So, the church makes a positive ID between unbelievers and believers, to maintain a pure church and pure doctrine. She does so to rightly administer the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. She does so to hold believers accountable with church discipline. And all of this in obedience to the glory of God. Imagine just for a moment if the church decided, eh, I'm not going to make a distinction anymore between believer and unbeliever. How would that work? How would that work practically? How about baptism in the Lord's table? How would we know who to admit to to the sacraments? How do we know who to admit to the table? All that information we read in 1 Corinthians 11 about making sure, uh, all that is impossible. Elders and deacons, how do we know uh, who are the right men for the the office of elder and deacon if we don't make a distinction between believer and unbeliever? We're likely to get an unbeliever in office, which is going to affect doctrine. Holding, each other, holding accountable with church discipline. We are not called to discipline unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul talks about, what, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? The answer is nothing. We, we don't judge the world, but we are called to exercise church discipline within the body of Christ. So we must make a positive ID. Calling people brothers and sisters in Christ, all that goes out the window if we don't make a distinction. 
We've got to make a distinction. In order for the church to function as Jesus has commanded us to function, we've got to make a positive ID. This does not mean that we are presuming to know people's hearts. This does not mean that we are making a pronouncement on someone's eternal uh, destiny. We're making a positive ID to function as a faithful church. A brother of mine, a believer, often says that we can't discern people's hearts, but we are called to be fruit inspectors. Fruit inspectors. And of course he's keying in on Galatians 5.22 and the fruit of the Spirit. And he's saying we, we can't discern whether or not someone is going to heaven or hell or whether they're truly regenerate, but we are called to examine people's lives and make a call, a positive ID. Job also gives us the means to make a positive ID. The presence of God, near or far. The word of God, teach me or don't teach me. The authority of God, I accept it and bow down to it, or I reject it and deny it. Relationship with God, cost me everything lens or cost analysis lens. These are some of the means by which we can make a positive ID. No, it can't be done by the presence or absence of suffering in someone's life, but it can and must be done in order to function as a faithful church. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, we we see in chapter 21 of Job, of all places, the means by which we as a church can use to help us make these important calls with confidence. Father, we ask that we remain humble and we never presume to judge the hearts of men, that is your job. But Father, we also pray that you would give us a full measure of your spirit to make these types of positive identifications, to draw the lines where you've drawn the lines, so we can continue to function as a faithful church. Amen.